Good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. And for those of you, those of you who are joining us online, we're glad that you are with us as well. And again, uh, if you're joining us online and there's something you'd like prayer for, please include that in the comments there on um, whatever platform you may be using so we can know how we can be praying for you. Well, it's probably one of the most un-Christmas-like things I'm doing right now. Uh, I'll um, go to bed at the end of a long day, and I'm just worn out. And it's, you know, we've done the evening routine with our son, and he's in bed, and I'm just lying there, and it's, it's time to wind down. And I've got the pillows propped up against the headboard, and I'm leaning back, just wanting to relax and let my mind soothe a bit. And what do I do? I get on my phone, I try to determine whether or not it's the end of the world. And I, and I, and I get on YouTube and I listen to these speeches of people uh, talking about whether or not America's going to come to some kind of a crashing end here within months. Or maybe time itself will be ending soon. There's plenty of doomsday prophets out there. It turns out there's a name for this thing I'm doing. It's called doomsday scrolling. As a matter of fact, there was an article that appeared in Wired magazine called Doom Scrolling is Eroding Your Mental Health. It goes on to say so many of us do it. You get into bed, turn off the lights, and look at your phone to check Twitter one more time. You see that coronavirus, coronavirus infections are up. Maybe your kids can't go back to school. The economy is cratering. Still, you incessantly scroll through bottomless doom and gloom news for hours as you sink into a pool of despair. The habit has become known as doom scrolling, the act of consuming an endless procession of online news. As protests over racial injustice and police brutality join the COVID-19 crisis in the news cycle, it's only gotten more intense. By the way, you can add all the election stuff in there now. You know, go ahead and pitch that in. Uh, the constant stream of news and social media never ends. According to a recent survey from the Pew Research Center, 66% of Americans feel worn out by the amount of news available. And, and doom scrolling is now in the dictionary. And there's something else in the etymology of the makeup of that word, and particularly this word doom. Because it has a certain revelation feel and tone to it. And as each person watches the demise of so much, they're also slowly destroying themselves. The danger here is something called hopelessness, despair. When you start watching and looking at these things and you don't think there's any way out of it, Maybe your hopes for America start to become dashed. Maybe the hopes for your children start to become dashed. And if you live in that place, you can get yourself into a place of despair. These things are happening. We don't know what to do about it. Now, how do I square that with a verse like 1 Thessalonians 5.16, which commands us, to rejoice always. See, the difficulty for the Christian is not that we're asked to be joyful. It's that we are commanded to be joyful. So what I want to talk about is how do I live with joy 
by faith. How do I live with joy by faith? The passage we're going to look at this morning comes from the book of Zephaniah. Yes, Gesundheit. Zephaniah, it's uh, at the end of the Old Testament, not quite at the end. It's before Malachi, before Haggai. You'll find Zephaniah. And uh, if you would, please stand with me as we read Ze Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. <clears throat> Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will, he will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. You may be seated. So we're continuing on this morning through this series we're doing called Better Days. There was a message to those who lived in ancient Israel, and there's a message to us today that there are better days to come. And what better time to talk about those better days to come than here at the time of Christmas? And this morning I want to talk about our subject this way. How do we live by faith? How do we live joyfully by faith? I'm going to walk through the passage we just read, and first we'll see that there's a command that God commands joyfulness. Then there's a cause, because the king has come. And then finally, we'll answer that question, how do I live with joy by faith? Three ways we'll talk about how do we live with joy by faith. So let me start out by giving a little background about this uh, book of Zephaniah, probably not one we often go to in our devotions and things like that. But it was a difficult time in the history of the Israelites. The word of God comes to another man, Zephaniah, a prophet. We've talked about Malachi. We've talked about how he was the mouthpiece of God. And now the, the word of the Lord comes to this man, Zephaniah. He lived in the capital city of Jerusalem at the time. And the times were a little better than previously. The people have returned to Israel. He prophesied during the time of King Josiah. King Josiah came after two really rotten kings, a king named Ammon and a king named Manasseh. However, Israel hasn't fully reformed from the problems that were brought in by those two bad kings. Uh, there, are still, there are still worship and, and praises being lifted to false gods like Baal and Molech. Those gods demanded things like child sacrifice and uh, ritual prostitution going on in the temples. So reforms are happening, but they're not happening very fast. 
And the book begins very soberly with this verse. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. The wicked will only have heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth. So God's about to clean house again with these Israelites. And uh, sometimes we like it when God says he's going to come in and clean house until we realize that the judgment starts with the people of God and their hearts and the need to bring judgment on his own people. So things are not good in Israel. The rich are not looking out for the poor. As a matter of fact, it says in chapter 3, verse 2, speaking of Israel, she listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to God. Fortunately, there's a two-fold message in the book of Zephaniah. Yeah, there's the doom, there's the gloom, there's bad things coming, but there's also this wonderful message of joy that comes up here in the book of Zephaniah. It comes to that passage that we just look at, and we see it here in chapter 3 in verse 14. First of all, that God has commanded joyfulness among the Israelites. God has commanded joyfulness among the Israelites. So looking at that verse one more time, sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. <clears throat> now this is given, this command is given to the Israelites before they're given anything else. And they're looking at this future time. If you look at the last chapter, the, pre, the one rather that comes previous to this, you'll see a lot of future tenses. What will happen? What will go on? They are looking forward to a time when their king is going to come. They're looking forward to a time when their enemies will finally be rid of them. They're looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. Because, see, when Christ came, so did joy. As a matter of fact, if you look at Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, it's a passage that you're probably familiar with. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the, Lord, the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear, and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good, noise of, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So joy has come. Not everything that's been promised in the book of Zephaniah obviously, has happened yet. Israel has not yet had their fortunes gathered back to them. But the coming of Christ set forward this event mentioned throughout the book of Zephaniah called the Day of the Lord. It began with the coming of Jesus Christ. It will come into its fulfillment with the second advent. The first advent was the birth of Christ. The second advent will be his coming back down to earth to reign once more. And that event is called the day of the Lord. It's when truly everything is going to be made right. But for us, we can have joy now. But one, and I think one important question for us to ask is, well, what is it? Like we can kick around this word joy quite a bit. And I remember in seminary, I went on this quest to find out, well, what is a good definition of joy. And I actually came across this. I've shared it with you all before. 
This came from a, a master's thesis that a guy named Daniel Bistrom had written. And he came up with this definition of joy. Joy is the deep, abiding assurance that Jesus Christ is sovereign over all creation. The deep, abiding assurance that Jesus Christ is sovereign over all creation. So see, this is why we can have joy now. This is why we can taste joy right now. Because he is sovereign. Now we still have to deal with the sinful world we're living in, don't we? So even though Jesus Christ has come, the evil that's in this world, the sin that's in this world, hasn't been fully set right yet. We're still waiting on that. And yet we're still commanded to have joy. As a matter of fact, about 25 times in the Bible, the command is there to have joy. Now that's not easy. As a matter of fact, at one point the psalmist says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. But fortunately, the story doesn't end there. And I love what one writer says named David Mathis about joy. He says, our joy will not be perfect in this life. We will always strain and struggle. We will have our angst and anxieties. We will have our ups and downs. Yet even here we have tastes. Not only is indomitable joy coming, but even now we sample the sweetness, especially in suffering. Though you do not now see him. This is from 1 Peter 1.8. You believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Then he goes on to say, it is good news that joy is not optional in the Christian life because the final weight falls not on our weak backs but on the almighty shoulders of God himself. So we are commanded to have this kind of joy. Now what is the cause of this joy? As it comes here in the, in the passage, it says to be joyful. Then the cause is, well, because the king has come. Again, they're looking forward to a time when the king will come. And we get to live on this side of the king's coming, his first coming. So this is the reason for joy. There in verse 15, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst, you shall never again fear evil. So we can be joyful because the king has come. Our king has come. But remember, he's not here fully yet. I'll, I'll sometimes use this phrase, already not yet. Because Christ has come, joy has come already, and yet not fully, not yet. Already, not yet. We still get to enjoy, for example, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, absolute forgiveness of sin, even though Christ has not yet fully set up his kingdom. But even though the king is in control, I want you to just think for a moment about the state in which our king came. Christ came into the world when he was born, a bloody, helpless little baby, needing for his mother to nurse him, needing to have himself cleaned, needing to have all the things we have to have, and we're babies ourselves, obviously with one infinite difference, that when Christ was in that tiny, helpless state, he was still fully 
the all-powerful creator of all things. He was still master of the universe, even in that state that he was in. And that's how our king came to us. And our king has accomplished a lot. There's seven promises in this passage. But just to pick a few, he clears away enemies, he removes fear, and he brings restoration. So Jesus knew joy, and yet he was characterized in a very interesting way during his time of ministry here on earth. As a matter of fact, I would say that Jesus knew joy perfectly, and yet what was he called on earth? He was called a man of sorrows because he was well associated with the grief that you and I have to experience while we're living in this life. But the fact that he came and experienced all of those things should be another piece of the joy that we get. As a matter of fact, I was looking at a sermon yesterday from Spurgeon. He was talking about this, about Christ as a man of sorrows. And he illustrated it by comparing him to Alexander the Great with his armies. He said this, uh, How completely it takes the bitterness out of grief to know that it once was suffered by Christ. The Greek soldiers, it is said, made long forced marches, which seemed to be beyond the power of mortal endurance, but the reason for their untiring energy lay in the presence of their general, Alexander the Great. He was accustomed to walking with them and bearing their fatigue. If the king himself had been carried like a Persian monarch in the middle of ease and luxury, the soldiers would have grown tired. But when they looked upon the king of men himself, hungering when they hungered, thirsting when they thirsted, often putting aside the cup of water offered to him and passing it to a fellow soldier who looked more faint than himself, they could not dream of stopping. Why? Because every Greek felt that he could endure any fatigue if Alexander could. We can bear poverty and slander, contempt, bodily pain, or death itself because Jesus Christ our Lord has borne it. By his humiliation, it shall become pleasure to be abased for his sake. And by the cross, it shall become life itself to surrender life for the sake of such a cause from so precious a master. See, that's the king that we have. A king that came down and experienced what we have to experience. And this is cause for joy. So then how do we avoid a sense of hopelessness and despair? How do we live life with joy by faith. I want to suggest three ways to do that. First of all, look out for joy killers. Look out for joy killers. So what is it about our experience here on earth that can take away joy? And I always uh, think it's important to note that the Bible makes a command. I take that to mean there is some struggle to meet that command. If it just came naturally, it wouldn't be commanded. So there's some struggle on our part to execute the said command. So there's some effort it takes to have the kind of joy that the Scripture is talking about. Now we go back to the passage we just looked at, and we get insights as to what the enemies of joy are. And we understand what Christ has taken away. We get insight into what the joy killers are in our lives. So then, first of all, you have to ask the question, well, who are your enemies? Because the king came to take away the power of these enemies. Now, if I ask you who are your enemies and a person pops into your mind, you're going down the wrong path. 
Because for the Christian, our enemies are primarily not people. As a matter of fact, it's clear from the Bible, they're not people. But the Christian has three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the three enemies of the Christian. As a matter of fact, Billy Graham uh, wrote something about this, which, by the way, are the three most vicious enemies you can have. Billy Graham said, you've already found that you have enemies. These are dangerous, vicious enemies who will use any method to defeat you in your Christian life. Within minutes after you made your decision, you found these enemies already at work. Either you were tempted to commit some sin or you had a moment of depression and discouragement. These enemies are always after you. Before you became a Christian, you had one enemy, and that was God. And guess what? He's the, he's the best enemy you could have because he loves you. He sacrificed his son for you. But when you became a Christian, you became targeted by three of the most vicious enemies you could ever be targeted by. You've got the world. You've got the world system of doing things, what the world values. The world's trying to make its values your values. The world says what you need more than anything is more power. And in a postmodern age when there is no transcendent truth, guess what? The more power you have, the more you get to define what truth is. That's the world. And then there's the flesh. Just do what you feel like doing. What makes you feel good? It's that part of us that's left over. It's this remnant of sin that we've got to struggle with for the rest of our lives. I love what John Owen said about this idea of the flesh. He said, be killing it or it will be killing you. As a matter of fact, he wrote a book on the mortification, the death of sin. It's about killing the flesh. It's a lifelong process of killing that part of us that's still pushing us to sin. And then there's the devil who hates the one that you and I serve. Hates everything about God. Hates everything about Christ. Always trying to engineer circumstances to get you to sin, to fail, wanting to devour you, having all his little minions in the process too, tempting you. Always trying to make you move in the wrong way. Christ endured all of these enemies, and he's defeated them. However, remember, it's already and not yet, because their power is still in the world. They will come to their ultimate end. But we're not there yet. These are joy killers. There's another one I want to mention too, fear. What are you afraid of? I have always struggled with the fear of rejection. Wanting to be liked. Is that something you struggle with? You have a fear of being viewed as homophobic or narrow-minded or the world putting some label on you as a Christian. One of the Supreme Court justices, Scalia, talked about this. He said, God assumed from the beginning that the wise of the world would view Christians as fools, and he has not been disappointed. If I have brought any message today, it is this. Have the courage to have your wisdom regarded as stupidity. Be fools for Christ, and have the courage to suffer the contempt of the sophisticated world. So these are what you need to look out for. These are the joy killers. And they're lurking around every corner. 
So look out for the joy killers. Also, look around for expressions of joy. Look around for joy expressions. What does joy look like? And obviously, this is going to vary by different people and their personalities. But I don't think Christians should be characterized by glumness. A guy named Helmut Thalik talked about this on his book on leadership. And he said, the glum, sour faces of many Christians, they rather give the impression that instead of coming from the Father's joyful banquet, they have just come from the sheriff who has auctioned off their sins and now are sorry they can't get them back again. (laughs) Who would want to be part of that? You know that some of the greatest works of art in all of mankind have been inspired by Christianity. The music, the paintings, museums are full of them. And it should be that way. Christians have joyful, stirring songs that celebrate the wonder of God himself. It's especially true during the Christmas season. Um, When you sing the songs we sang this morning or you hear Handel's Messiah, um, there's there's a wonderful contrast to this, by the way. The comedian Steve Martin, he came up with a song. He performed this on The Letterman Show in 2011. It's called, Atheists Don't Have No Songs. And just listen to the contrast that he brings about, I think, pretty brilliantly in this song. He says, Christians have their hymns and pages, Hava Nagilas for the Jews, Baptists have the Rock of Ages, Atheists just sing the blues. (laughs) Romantics play Claire de Lune, born again, sing He is Risen. But no one ever wrote a tune for godless existentialism. For atheists, there's no good news. They'll never sing a song of faith. In their songs, they have one rule, the he is always lowercase. And then he repeats it, the he is always lowercase. Now, this is meant to entertain us, but there's an incredible truth that comes through in this song. Contrast that to a hymn that moves hearts and moves minds and moves people to action. These are expressions of joy where words fail we then have worship. There's a reason that the best art that exists have been expressions of Christian doctrine. Because it springs out of this joy that we have. It's when we can't contain ourselves. This is why Christians sing. And you know what? If you're not feeling like singing, do it anyway. Because when you start singing the song, you may find out that you do feel like singing. You can start with the expression of joy, even if you question if the joy is there to start with. So sing. Sing our songs. So look out for joy killers. Look around for joy expressions. And then look forward to God's kingdom. Look forward to God's kingdom. We're living in a world that is temporary. It doesn't take long to get on the internet to see that it is broken. It's a mess. But it won't be broken forever. A woman named Nancy Guthrie uh, interviewed an author named Johnny Erickson Tata. If you don't know who Johnny Erickson Tata is, when she was a teenager, she became paralyzed in a diving accident at the age of 17. So she's been a a quadriplegic now for over 50 years. In an interview, she had an interesting uh, perspective on what it is she's looking forward to. She said, you look at me in a wheelchair, paralyzed for 52 years. Most people would think 
Oh, you're looking forward to getting your new body. She said, yeah, that's a fringe benefit. But then she goes on to say this. But I'm looking forward to the new heart, a heart free of manipulating others with precisely timed phrases, a heart free of fudging the truth, a heart free from hogging the spotlight, believing my own press releases, a heart free of not believing the best of others, a heart free of caving into fear or anxiety about the future. I can't wait to have a heart free of sin. Whew. Oh, me either. And I'm guessing I'm not alone in that. So if I was going to sum up this sermon, be faithfully joyful by looking out for joy killers, looking around for joy expressions, and then looking forward to God's kingdom. Looking to these three things. You know, joy really comes from being close to Jesus. From being close to Him. Especially throughout the holiday season, which can be so painful for so many, and every season for that matter. I want to close with a story that I believe depicts just that. Uh, in 1994, two Americans were asked to come to Russia. They were asked by the Russian Department of Education to teach morals and ethics uh, based on biblical principles to a number of different institutions. One of those was an orphanage of about 100 children. And it was nearing the holidays, so they decided to go and share the Christmas story with these orphans. So they told them about Mary and Joseph, they, about them arriving in Bethlehem, finding no room in the inn, that Jesus was born in a stable and was placed in a manger. They go on, they say this. They, they told them all those stories. They said throughout the story, the children and the orphanage staff were looking at them in absolute amazement. Sitting on their edge of their stools, they never heard this before. They were trying to grasp every word. Then to complete the story, they gave some materials to the children who'd be spending Christmas in this little orphanage in Russia. They gave them some materials to build a manger, a little bit of felt, some sticks. So one of the, one of the teachers was walking around and was looking at what these orphans were building. And there was one little boy named Misha. He was six years old. And he built his manger scene. But when the teacher looked into the manger, there were two babies. And didn't understand what was going on. He asked the translator to come over and asked the child to explain what was going on in the manger scene. So they asked Misha. They said he sat back and got very serious and folded his arms. And he started to explain. He explained with accuracy everything to the coming of Christ, to the part where Mary put the baby in the manger. But then he started to add lib his own story. Now I'm going to try to get through this. And he said, and when Mary laid the baby in the manger, Jesus looked at me and asked me if I had a place to stay. And I told him, I have no mama and I have no papa. So I don't have any place to stay. Then Jesus told me I could stay with him. But I told him I don't have a gift to give like everybody else did. But I wanted to stay with Jesus so much. So I thought about what I, could, what I had that maybe I could use for a gift. I thought maybe if I keep him warm, that would be a good gift. So I asked Jesus, if I keep you warm, will that be a good enough gift? 
And Jesus told me, if you keep me warm, that will be the best gift anybody ever gave me. So I got in the manger, and then Jesus looked at me, and he told me I could stay with him for always. As he finished that story, his eyes filled up with tears. They splashed down his little cheeks. And they said they put his hands over his face, his head dropped to the table. And he sobbed and he sobbed. Because he found someone who would never abandon or abuse him. Somebody that would stay with him always. See, our source of joy is not our circumstances. It's not our stuff. It's a person. It's, it's the person of Jesus Christ himself. Please pray with me. Almighty God, I pray that throughout this Christmas season, God, those that feel abandoned and hurt and abused by a sinful world, God, I pray that they would know you Lord, I pray that their circumstances would not overwhelm them. Everything we're facing right now, God, every time we get online, every time we look at the doom, Lord, I would pray that, I pray that we would remember that this is a world that you still are sovereign over, and that's the source of our joy. It's an assurance we have that you're over all and in control of all. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.